you can turn your Bibles to the Minor Prophets. Take the time to, uh, to find those. It took me, uh, those might be the pages of your Bible that are stuck together, uh, or the names you can't pronounce. Um, we're not going to be necessarily walking through any particular passage this morning, but we are going to introduce the series that's coming up. Uh, I found it important to make sure we kind of know what's coming up for the next 12 weeks as we do one message on each of the Minor Prophets. Um, and if you notice, we've, we've, we've titled this series, um, The Book of the Twelve. And so you might first off be wondering, well, why call it The Book of the Twelve? And the reason for that is, is actually the Latin term for the collection of these twelve prophets was called Prophetes Minores, or what we know as the Minor Prophets. That came from uh, the Latin term to refer to these books. But in ancient Judaism... Uh, they referred to them as the Book of the Twelve or simply the Twelve. So we're kind of going back to our Jewish roots because what, is, what does John 4 say? Salvation is of the Jews. And so we're kind of stepping back a little bit further in history and we're calling this the Book of the Twelve, which is how uh, ancient Judaism would have seen it. But these 12 books of the Bible contain some of the hardest passages of Scripture to understand and this morning and throughout the next 12 weeks, Lord willing, if we're able to go through them uninterrupted, uh, we will be able to cover a lot of things. Uh, it was back in 2012 when my wife was pregnant with our, our, uh, and expecting our first child, Kinley. And we took a class at a hospital in West Des Moines. I don't remember what the class was called, but it's one of those classes you go and they, and they, they tell you what to expect as, as uh, you know, your, your wife is getting ready to go into labor, what you can expect during the process, uh, what the hospital's going to be like, what the nurses and the doctors are going to do. And, you know, this being our first child, we're, we're going through all of this and they're explaining you know, how to breathe and the breathing patterns and they're telling husbands uh, what they could do to make their life more, uh, their wife more comfortable, or life more comfortable, wife, <laughs> what they could do to make their wife more comfortable as she's, as she's in the labor process. And, and I was thinking, isn't that what the epidural's for? Uh, um, thank God for the epidural. And uh, amen, I heard a few amens. And uh, so we're going through all this. And they talked about uh, the teacher saying, you know, husbands, whatever preference of music your wife likes, or if there's a movie she wants to watch, if there's a card game she wants to play, you can turn out the lights, you can, you know, and she gave this huge list. Well, at the end of that class, she, I don't know if it was a contest between the men and the women, or if she just, she just started going man by man and saying, tell me one thing that you can do in the room while your wife is in labor to make her more comfortable. And I had one in my head. I was, it was the song one. And uh, that was the only one I could remember. And so I said, okay. So we started going guy by guy, and they're giving their answers. And one of the guys says, well, we can play music. And, it was, and so she came to me. And it was one of those moments where maybe I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have been, but I didn't have anything. So the instructor starts giving me some clues. She starts going like this and looking up at the ceiling. And I was like, what are you, what, what's going on here? And she keeps looking up. And she did that for a long time, and I wasn't getting it. Until finally another guy said he could turn down the lights. And I said, oh, yes, that's what I could do. But it was kind of one of those things where it just, I was clueless. And she just told me things I could do, and I could only remember one. And I couldn't, I couldn't get the hint as she was looking up to the lights. And that might describe many of us when it comes to the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve. Maybe you read it during your devotions. Maybe it's one of those things where maybe it's coming up in a Bible reading plan and you're thinking, oh no, 
you know, here we go. And maybe you read through one of them or a section or even all of them, and, you, and, you, and you, at the end of it, if God were to ask you, okay, what did you learn? And it might be one of those deer in the headlight look, I, I don't know, in, my, in those clueless sort of, I'm not sure what I just read, I don't know what it means, I don't know what I'm looking for. And that's my own story. I... Um, we, we, the, we did a Pastors Roundtable video we released on YouTube yesterday. I encourage you to go watch it. It's on our YouTube channel and our Facebook. But one of the, one of the things I mentioned in there, and I want to mention here as well, is I was not born with an understanding of the book of the Twelve. When I was saved, it's not as if God especially illuminated my mind more so than yours to understand these things. When God called me to pastoral ministry, it's not as if a lightning bolt came down and I was all of a sudden filled with a total understanding of all the things said in the prophets. That's just not it. I've had to hit the books hard. I've had to hit the book hard. And I've had to study. And one of the reasons I even mentioned why I kind of did this is kind of a selfish reason. I think this is going to be good for all of us, but I, I want to know what's going on in here. So I wanted to find a way to force myself to figure out what these books are all about. And Lord willing, as we go through this, we'll be able to understand this a little bit better. I'm going to do two things this morning. It's going to be almost, and it won't, won't take long, this is going to be a very general introductory sermon as we get ready to get into these books But what I want to do is I want to give you some principles on how to read the prophets. Now, as a preacher, maybe you've heard the analogy that preachers are supposed to prepare the meal. So our job is not to come up on Sunday mornings and give you the ingredients. Our job is to get all the ingredients together at the beginning, throughout the week, and then when we come to you, here's the meal. Here's the Thanksgiving meal. Well, this morning, I'm going to give you a few ingredients so that you can take them yourself and go and maybe understand the minor prophets and even... The, the other prophets a little bit better. So, I'm going to give you four things this morning off the bat, and then we'll talk about three of the main pictures we'll see in as we walk through these books. But as a way of introduction, when you think of the book of the Twelve, think a few things. Number one, think context. Think context. And to start with the context, we have to think the story of the Bible. So the main narrative section of the Old Testament happens within the first 17 books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, you can count the first 17. Genesis through Esther. Now the next five books of the Old Testament, which would be Job through the Song of Solomon, those next five books are are personal experiences of certain people that happened during the first 17 books. Okay, so you have the first 17 books, that's the main history. And then you have the next five books, Job through Song of Solomon, and men uh, are, are writing about their experiences happening during those first 17. Now the last 17 books of the Old Testament, which is Isaiah through Malachi, these are known as the prophets. And these books contain God's commentary on what was going on in the first 17 So Mark Dever says, uh, as he simplifies this, he says, If the first 17 books follow Israel's history, and the middle group describes individual experiences within that history, this last group provides God's own commentary on that history. The books of prophecy are, as it were, God's authoritative editorials, end quote. So these, these 340 years during which these prophets minister at the latter end of this great story, is is what we're dealing with when we come to the book of the Twelve. 
Now, what is going on in the story at this point? Very simply, there was an enormous depth of unfaithfulness to God. There were great changes in political powers and in political landscapes and the nations that were beginning to gain momentum in their world domination. So God's people, now get this, God's people were living in a time of great unfaithfulness to God, and there were great changes in international politics and national morality. Like, man, if only we lived in an era where we could relate to that, right? If only we lived in an era where maybe these books would make sense to us. Good news, we do. And that's what the context, the story of the Bible, that's what's going on. There's also a key point we need to understand when it comes to context, and that is the covenant. The covenant. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 28, God lays out his covenant with his people Israel. And this is important because God did not just make a political treaty with the people of Israel. He covenanted with them. He married them. At Sinai, he made with Moses and the people at the mountain of Sinai, he made a covenant. It's a promise between two parties of faithful and loyal love, obedience, and trust. That's what Israel said. I promise to be faithful, to love you, to trust you, to be fully obedient to you, and to follow you wherever you go, God. That was the promise. And so God gives them the law. And the law was a set of instructions for how to live within that covenant. Now here's the important, when we come to the book of the 12, as Scott Duvall says in his book, Grasping God's Word, he says the themes of Deuteronomy are woven into the fabric of the prophetic books. So when we come to the book of the 12, when we come to the prophets, they're not making new stuff up. They're going back to Deuteronomy, they're going back to Leviticus, they're going back to Mount Sinai, and they're saying this is the covenant you made with God. And so within the covenant God made with Israel were promises for blessing, for obedience, and promises of death, destruction, and deportation to captivity for unfaithfulness. And God was long-suffering and patient toward Israel, but the prophets enter the scene at a time when God's patience was going to transfer into the fulfillment of those curses, the next step of punishment. So when you think the book of the Twelve, think that, think that context. Number two, think covenant enforcers. Covenant enforcers. You might say, what is a covenant enforcer? It's a prophet. That's what the prophets were. This was the primary task of the prophets. The majority of the prophets were about bringing the prophets back to covenant faithfulness to God. Peter Gentry explains further, he says, the majority of what the prophets did constitutes proclaiming a message that explains how the word of God, already received and revealed in the past, applies to present circumstances and situations. Okay, so their task was to, was to bring Israel back to covenant faithfulness to God. These men, were, they were preaching sermons. That's what we have. We have a collection of sermons from these men going to Israel, going to Judah, and saying, return to the Lord, be faithful to him. Get rid of your sin. God hates it. God is threatening judgment on you if you don't turn from your sin. So they preached these sermons. They preached these sermons of God's supremacy. 
And so they were to speak for God. Their message was not original. When you get into the book of the Twelve, or any of the prophets, their message was not original. They weren't making new stuff up. They were proclaiming the old, ancient words of God from Mount Sinai just in a new and fresh way in a new era to a particular audience. They were not some radical social reformers. They weren't new religious philosophers. They were preaching the word of God that was already revealed. They preached the supremacy of God the way God wanted them to preach it at that moment. Now I just want to give you a word on prophecies. Most prophecies, now this might be, I think, maybe the biggest confusing fact. So, so really latch on to this when you come to the prophets. Most prophecies given by the prophets in the book of the 12, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel as well, most of the prophecies were concerning the near future to them. Some prophecies concern the coming Messiah. Some prophecies concern the things that are still future to us. But the percentage is small. So, as, so if you're going through the minor prophets and you read, and you read something and you say, okay, okay, what does this mean? What's coming next for us? Like, how is this telling me what's coming next in the future? Or how does this relate to Russia? Or how does this relate to America? Or how does this relate to what happened in World War II? How does this relate to what's going on? It's not, you're just, it's not gonna work. They weren't concerned about Largely, they weren't concerned about things that are still future to us. Yes, they proclaim and prophesy of the coming Messiah. We see, that, we, see that, we see that a lot in there. We even see a lot of prophecies concerning things future to us. And they, many times they zigzag between the three, which makes it even all the more difficult. But, but here's, a, here's some percentages Gordon Fee gives. He says, many Christians refer to prophetic books only for predictions about the coming of Jesus and or certain features of the new covenant age, as if predictions of events that are still distant from us was their main concern. Here's what he says, less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. That means less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is concerning the coming of Jesus. Less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. That's the age we're living in. And then less than 1% of their prophecies concerns events yet to come in our time. Which means if you go to these books and you're, you're looking 100% or 99% or 50% on what's coming next for us, you're going to miss it. Most of the prophecies we read are in our past. There's only a select few that are still the future for us. And so attempting to draw a direct link between Old Testament prophecies and current political regimes is impossible to do. Nations come and go. Just look at the last 2,000 years, 3,000 years since these were written. Look how much nations, the boundaries, political powers, languages, peoples that come and go. Prophets, they prophesy mainly about the coming exile. They do prophesy about the coming Messiah. They do prophesy about the coming kingdom, which is still future to us. So thank covenant enforcers. Number three, a couple more here by way of introduction. Think content. Think content. So the context is the, the realm in which they're speaking. Content is what are they actually saying? And they're mainly saying three things. Number one, they're saying, you have broken your covenant with God, repent. Number two, they're saying, if you don't repent, you will be judged. And number three, they're saying, but even in that judgment, there's hope. 
Now you may read the prophets, and you might be sitting there saying, okay, I've read the prophets, never seen any of those things. You made it seem really simplistic. I don't really get that when I read it. And part of the reason that might be hard to see is because the content is written in poetry. It's like, oh my goodness. I mean, God really, God's really going to make us work at this, isn't he? I thought when I became a Christian, I got the Holy Spirit. I was supposed to understand everything on my first read-through. What's going on here? Or my second read-through. I'm on like my 50th read-through, and I'm still not getting it. What's going on? Poetry. So when it comes to content, what are the prophets saying? They're saying you've broken your covenant with God, so repent. If you don't repent, you'll be judged, but there's hope beyond the judgment. How are they saying it? They're saying it with poetry. Poetry. Hebrew poetry. Ancient poetry. Which means, I guess the simplest way to describe it is Hebrew poetry, they're not looking to rhyme words, they're looking to rhyme phrases or ideas. Okay, so they're, they want to they wanna, they wanna rhyme thoughts, they want to rhyme ideas and theologies and concepts. So we're not going to... You, you know, going from Colossians where it's just like, okay, one sentence after the next. You keep building and building and building. That's not what's going to happen in poetry. They use imagery. And the imagery is loaded with emotional impact. Which means if you're not ready to emotionally sit where God is coming from. Or emotionally sit where the prophets are coming from. You may not be ready for it. Because the prophets in poetry, they're loaded with imagery. An emotional impact. The second line of poetry often uh, further explains the first line. Or maybe it contrasts the first line. Or maybe it adds to it. We have to be aware of those things. There's strong use of imagery and typology to describe events. And sometimes a prophet uses an event, a person, or a place that already happened to describe something that's coming up. So he even uses uh, redemption from Egypt or even the exile to even talk about future things. So we have, the, we have the phrase in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Anybody remember that's found in the New Testament? And referring to Jesus when they went to Egypt and it says, out of Egypt I called my son. Some of it is apocalyptic where there's these color metaphor, colorful metaphors. You might be sitting there saying, man, this is a lot. But we do it all the time, don't we? We use metaphors all the time. Uh, so, for example, if I say, um, if you were to ask me, um, how far away is Farmer John's house? And uh, I would say, oh, about three, four miles as the crow flies. Anybody still say that? Is that still a thing? Does everybody still understand? Okay. Um, I say, it's about three or four miles as the crow flies. And maybe I go home tonight, and I'm writing in my journal, uh, my, glitter, my glittery journal, sparkles. And I say, dear diary, today we went to Farmer John's house. We do it every Sunday to eat meals with them, and it's about, it's about four miles as the crow flies. And a thousand years from now, America's not around. There's no such thing as Iowa. There's no such thing as Mount Pleasant. And some, some way distant future archaeologists um, from Mars, because that's where people will be living by then, and it comes, to, it comes to Earth, and it finds my journal. And it opens it up, and it says, it starts reading. And he's going to go back, and he's going to write a research paper on what he discovered. And he says, okay, so this, this guy named Zach Fisher went to Farmer John's house, and it was four miles as the crow flies. And so he goes back, and he goes back to Mars, and he writes in this journal about uh, what they would do in those days. He, writes, he said, in, in ancient days, what they would do, in order to find out where they were going, is they would release a crow into the sky. 
and they would follow the crow all the way to their destination. And that was their way of navigating how to get places. And I say, that is ridiculous. They didn't understand the metaphor. N.T. Wright gives another one kind of talking about the Berlin Wall, where he says, imagine if, if kind of in the same context we describe the, the Berlin Wall as an earth-shattering event. Some ancient person says, man, some earthquake caused the wall to fall, and then East and West Germany decided they could actually live together after all. Again, completely missing the, the metaphor of being an earth-shattering event. But that's what, that's what they're doing. And yeah, it's hard because... They don't use as the crow flies, and, and they do in some ways use earth-shattering events, but it's different for us. So think content. Think what are they saying? What's the main message, and how are they saying it? And number four, as we kind of wrap up the ingredient section of the message, think Christ. Think Christ. Because regardless of whether or not they're pointing directly to Christ or they're pointing directly to the coming Messiah, the prophets lead us to see and savior the savor the Lord Jesus. Because ultimately, he is the one they pointed to. Jesus and his gospel work can be magnified from every single prophet. This doesn't mean that every prophetic text is going to point to Jesus in the same way. But it does mean that the foundations of the full revelation of Jesus Christ and his grace and God's glory seen in the grace of Christ can be found in the prophets. In other words, when Jesus showed up, he fulfilled the prophets. He was their hope. He was their Messiah. He was the supreme one. And so when you think of the book of the twelve, think those things. And I think it'll help you as you continue to read and, and uh, as God gives you insight. Because the fact of the matter is, God did not promise that the moment we're saved, he gives us the Holy Spirit and everything is simple and easy to understand. He, he, needs, he causes us to work and to think and to pray over these things. And there's great benefit in these books. So as we get into the meat of the books, and we're doing one message, remember, on, in each of the book of the 12. So we're going to do 12 messages, one on each, one on, from each prophet. What is it that you're going to see? And I think a study on the book of the 12 is a study on three aspects of God. And, and I think this is why it's going to relate to you and me. Number one, we're going to see God's grace towards sinners. We'll see God's grace towards sinners. And in order to understand the grace of God, we have to talk about the glory of God. Because the glory of God is the most important thing in all the universe. All creation reveals the glory of God. The stars the, the planets, the galaxies, the animals, the trees, the creation, it proclaims the glory of God. But in all God's creation, there was one rebel. One. It wasn't the trees, it wasn't the animals, it wasn't the planets, it wasn't the fish. In all God's creation, as they reveal his glory, there was one rebel, and that's you and me. We have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We don't revere him as creator of all things. We don't embrace his glory. We don't embrace his desires. We go our own way, and when we don't glorify God, God rejects us. But God didn't give up on mankind. Imagine you're with God, and maybe you know everything. And God says... 
I'm going to choose the people of Israel to be mine. Because in the Old Testament, those are the people of Israel. And he would say, are you, are you, sh- are you sure? They're, they're idolaters. They're still in their, they're in, their, in Egypt, and they're, and they're idolaters in Egypt. Like, guys, they're idolaters. They're idolatrous. They serve idols. They don't even know your name. When Moses comes, they don't even really know who he's talking about. They've all but forgotten you. Until finally, when things get so bad, they finally start to cry out to whatever God Abraham had. And then you say, and God, after you saved them from Egypt, do you know what they're going to do? You're going you're gonna to lead them from slavery. You're going to lead them to Mount Sinai. The glory, your glory is literally going to shine off of Moses' face and shine on the people. And they're going to see it. And God, do you know what you're gonna, they're going to spend the next 40 years doing? Complaining. And murmuring. And accusing. Rejecting you. And they will be filled with selfishness. And yet God still gave them the promised land. And they get in the promised land. God's promise fulfilled. And God, God all the way through is saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, Israel. I redeemed you, I bought you, you're mine. And so they go into the promised land. They set up kings and kingdoms. And there's a, there's a period of faithfulness with Joshua. Then the judges come and they got some of the, some of the worst sin that wouldn't even be named among the pagans. And God says, I've got a plan for them. I've got a plan for me. I'm going to raise up a king. And so they set up a kingdom. And David, things are going pretty good. In Solomon, things are mm, starting to turn more towards the idolatrous side, adultery, things like that. And then soon you get the split kingdom of civil war constantly, all this stuff going on. And God's glory is defamed moment after moment after moment after moment after moment throughout all of Israel's history. And at the end of this, they go to exile. And they still don't learn their lesson. So God says, I have one more plan. I have one more part to this. I showed them my glory in the garden. They rejected it. I showed them my glory in the very face of Moses. They rejected it. I showed them my glory in the temple. And Ezekiel tells us about the glory departing from Israel. God says, there's one more place I want to show them my glory. And it's in a human body. Jesus Christ, the one whom we behold his glory full of grace and truth. The glory of God himself. And it's in Jesus we behold the glory of God full of grace and truth. And the Bible is a story of God unfolding his plan and unfolding his grace. And the ultimate consummation of his grace is found in Jesus Christ. And it's found even in the prophets. And so we read in in Micah chapter 7, where he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? The remnant there being like, there's only a few of us left, and and you're still holding on to us? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God loves loving you. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea, and they can't ever be found again. That's God's grace towards sinners. 
And God con- continually shows, him, shows them his grace. So as we go through these, the book of the 12, we're going to see God's grace towards sinners. But secondly, we're going to see God's grief over sin. God's grief over sin. Because it's not like God was just like, oh yeah, don't, I don't really care about the murmuring and the complaining. I don't care about the idolatry and going after Baals. I don't really care about all that. No, it was grieving him. It was grieving him as a husband whose wife went after another lover. That's what we're going to read about in Hosea. Uh, that's what we're going to learn about in Hosea next week. But, they, but they real, there's three main sins that Israel was committing, Israel and Judah, the northern and southern tribes. And the first was idolatry. They went after false gods. They worshipped the Baals. They tried to manipulate the powers that be so they can have a good life. They forgot God. And when I say forget God, I'm not saying it wasn't a mental lapse. It was a moral lapse. They looked at God on one hand. It says, okay, here's the God. The God of our fathers. God who delivered us out of Egypt. And then on the other hand, they looked at money and power and health, and wealth, and success, and all these kind of pleasures. And between the two, they said, well, who needs God? I'm doing just fine. That's Hosea chapter 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Who needs God? I've got the things, I've got the toys, I've got what this world offers, I've got the food, I've got the money. Who needs them? It was idolatry. And there was empty, the second sin was empty religion. Have you heard that phrase before? Empty religion. They were so hammered with religious ritual, they were forsaking a meaningful relationship with God. The rituals, the actions, the religious tasks became the essence of their spirituality. They ceased to be the means through which their relationship with God was developed. And that might be the case for some of you. Where all the religious stuff you're doing, it's no longer about coming to church or singing songs, reading your Bible and praying in order to to develop a relationship with God. But it's just become the thing you do. It's become the thing that defines whether or not you're a Christian. And God in his word is saying, that is empty religion. You're not mine. I want a relationship with you. And we'll talk on that in a moment. But the question there was, you know, the earlier question with idolatry was, I've got all this stuff. Who needs God? The question here is, am I doing religious things? Do I look religious when I come to church on Sunday? Do I look religious around other religious people? Can I nod with my head and affirm, yeah, about Jesus and about God and the Bible? Can I do those things? Well, I'm doing just fine. Idolatry, empty religion. The third great sin that we read about in the book of the 12 is hatred towards neighbors. Social injustice. God is concerned about social justice, but not in the way we think about it today. When we, hear about, when we hear social justice today, it's normally in the context of some socialist ideology where everyone should have equal everything. And there needs to be some sort of distribution of wealth to make sure everybody has the exact same everything. And that's, uh, everybody's on the same socioeconomic level. It's the idea that uh, everybody should be equal in every single way and 
And that's what we think when you hear of it. But, but the word pair, justice, righteousness, is seen over and over again. Uh, we see it pop up in Micah chapter 6, and we'll look at that verse here uh, a little bit later. It's in 18 times in Isaiah, and I know we're not looking through Isaiah, but 18 times in Isaiah, the justice, righteousness uh, word pair comes up again and again and again. It's a summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. God was concerned with how weaker individuals were treated. And what the Israelites would do is they would price gouge in the marketplace. They would give preferential treatment to those who were rich or wealthy or influential over those who were orphans and widows and poor. So social justice as God see it is, is it's instructions given to us by God for treating other people in a genuinely human way. We should treat other people no matter what their race or their gender, or their socioeconomic class, we should treat other people in genuine human ways. And God was saying, you're not doing that. You are looking at people as if they're less than human based on how rich they are, what family they belong to, and all those things. This grieved God, because the sins of Israel are still the sins today. Think about idolatry. The church is running in droves after the gods of this age. The god of self-fulfillment and pleasure with all kinds of sexual perversions and other self-centered entitlements. Our hearts are idol-making factories, and we are an idolatrous people. For many in the culture, in the church today, me has become the idol we demand everyone else bow down to and serve. Serve me, love me, give me attention. And these, these people and our hearts like this, we show up on Sunday and we say the Christian things and we pretend to be faithful Christians and we, we do Christian things, we have a Christian smile on. All the while we're lacking a true relationship with God. And God had an intense love for Israel and they, he was grieved when they turned from him. The question we have to ask ourselves, does my sin grieve me? Does it grieve me? We'll see God's grace towards sinners, God's grief over sin, and lastly, we'll see God's goal for his saints. Number one, God wants a relationship. God wants a relationship. Uh, just the other day, as I was preparing this message, you know, I had all this stuff in my mind, I was, so I wanted, to, I wanted to go on a walk and try to figure out how I was going to organize all the information, and uh, I stepped out of my office to kind of walk around the block, and... and uh, a thought came into my mind, and it was, the, it was the thought that God wants to have supremacy in our lives. And if you watch the video, um, uh, the pastors around the table, one of the questions was, you know, it can seem like we're going from Colossians to the book of the 12. There's like a, there's a big difference between the two, but when I, when I was walking yesterday, I thought, okay, God wants to have supremacy in my life. Does that, he wants to have first place in my life. That's what the prophets are saying. God should have first place in your life. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Somebody please say yes. Okay, okay, there's a few of you. God wants to have first place. I'm noticing a theme through scripture. God wants your heart. He doesn't want your religion. We're gonna go through four verses real quick. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I want you to know me. I don't just want your burnt offerings. The next one from Joel chapter 2 where he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
fasting, weeping, mourning. Tear your hearts. Don't just tear your clothes. Tear your hearts. I want your heart. In Micah chapter 6, we referenced this earlier, where he says, Shall I come before the Lord with all these burnt offerings, these religious duties? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He's told you, church. He's told you, Calvary Baptist Church, what is good. What's the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And then Nahum chapter 1 where he says, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God wants a relationship with you. And today that happens through Jesus Christ. Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus? If you're a sinner and you've rejected his glory, God is also rejecting you. But he offers to bring you into his family, to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. If you would believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And you'll have that relationship. And it will never end. So God wants a relationship. But the last thing here we'll look at is that God will bring restoration. This is the great sovereignty of God. Israel and Judah did not go into exile because Babylon's gods beat the God of Israel. The Assyrians and Babylonians, they fulfilled God's word. We know the end. They were agents in his hands. God's plan will be accomplished. He will bring restoration. He will restore and make new. And that's the salvation of God. But here's the thing about it. God does not restore anybody back to status quo. God changes someone. He makes them a new creation. The goal is for you to be a new creation with new heart, new eyes. To see the glory of God's grace. His grace is so immaculately glorious. The question is, can you see it? Christian, can you see it? Or have you been blinded to it? Or you say, I can't see God's glory. There's too many things in my life. God is offering his salvation to everyone. And he's offering you, Christian, fresh eyes to see his glory. There are some glorious riches that God has implanted in the book of the 12. My prayer is that through this series you will grow in your marvel of God's grace. You'll grow in your passion for holiness. And you'll grow in hope and confidence as you see God who is sovereign over all things and one day will restore all things. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. As we begin this journey through these 12 books, Lord, help us to be all the more amazed at your amazing grace. Lord, inflame our hearts with a passion for holiness. And then God, renew our hearts and inflame our hearts with hope. As we see your sovereign rule play out before our eyes. And these prophets, give us hope, knowing that you one day will uh, accomplish all your promises for things that are still future to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.